couple of days ago, we saw six whales. Six whales? Six whales. Really? After the storm, I don't know where the hell they come from. <laughs> they were on six different whales. Yeah, you... different whales. Are yeah. they all humpback whales? They're all humpback whales. Oh, very yes, cool. Yes, yes. That's Joey, everyone. He was one of the deckhands on the boat that took us out onto lower New York Bay to see whales. Yep, you heard me right. Whales, right here in New York City. This is Adrift NYC. My name is Kathy Boyle Almeida. Today, our destination is Lower New York Bay, which is number eight in the list of waterways we're exploring. For those of you who are new here, we're exploring 30 bodies of water that touch New York City. You heard me right, we're visiting 30 different waterways. And I'm taking you with me to each one of these marine environments, and I'm sharing conversations that I'm having with historians and scientists about these places, plus talented folks who are inspired by these waterways to create incredible things. This episode feels like an extra special one, because we're publishing it at a time when life in New York City feels, well, uncertain to say the least, all because of the coronavirus pandemic. We're experiencing illness and death in shocking numbers, we're adjusting to stay-at-home lockdown measures to minimize the spread of the disease, and we're dealing with all the emotions that come with those things. But we're finding happiness in new ways, like cheering for our essential workers from our apartment windows every night at 7 p.m. And there's happiness to be found in New York City's waterways, too. So I hope this episode will brighten your day, dear listeners, particularly those of you who live here in New York City. Before I dive in, I want to let you all know that my visit to Lower New York Bay occurred before any of us had even heard about the coronavirus. We at Adrift NYC are abiding by the stay-at-home and stay-safe mandate of New York's mayor and New York's governor to help stop the spread of the virus. That means our adventures are on pause as well. Thankfully, we already had this adventure under our belts and we're happy to share it with all of you today. Oh, and one more thing. While our primary purpose here at Adrift NYC is to get you all out exploring and enjoying New York City's waterways, I ask that you hold off until the governor lifts the state and city lockdown restrictions. This episode will get you ready for that time, which is getting closer by the day, we all hope. Okay, let's talk about Lower New York Bay. For those of you who don't know, Lower New York Bay is the outermost part of New York Harbor. Picture this. If you got on a boat from the southern tip of Manhattan and headed towards the Atlantic, you'd first ride through the upper New York Bay, which we covered in episode one. And when you got near the Verrazano Bridge, that's when you'd be entering Lower New York Bay. This waterway spans the narrow strait between Staten Island and Brooklyn, and the southern end of the bay opens directly to the Atlantic Ocean. Now, in case I'm not successfully painting a picture of where this waterway is, I'll put a map in the show notes on adriftnyc.com so you can see exactly where it is. I have to say, I was really excited to explore this waterway, as I think you can probably hear in my voice in this clip from the day of our trip. We are heading out to hopefully see some whales and dolphins right here in New York. Very exciting. <laughs> 
That clip was recorded on a boat ride that I took with my husband. We left from Reese Landing in Rockaway, Queens, and the boat was called the American Princess. That boat took us out on Lower New York Bay where we saw several pods of dolphins and multiple whales. While on the boat, I got the chance to interview Celia Ackerman, who is a naturalist on the American Princess, and she also works with Gotham Whale, which is a nonprofit organization that studies and advocates for whales in New York City. Celia told me a little bit about the work that she's doing with that group and about the whales I was about to see. I have to apologize in advance for the less than perfect audio that you're about to hear, because when I spoke with Celia, the boat was already underway, and so you're going to hear engine noise and voices of other passengers in the background. Still, I think you're going to love hearing what Celia shared with me about the whales of New York City. What is your role here on the boat? Um, I am a naturalist with American Princess Cruises, oh. and I also work with a group called Gotham Whale. Oh, and what does that group do? Uh, we have been documenting the return of several species of marine mammals back to our local waters since 2012, in particular the humpback whale. Oh, we maintain the longest running um, identification catalog okay. of the whales that are uh, seasonal here in our area. Wow, how many do you, have you seen in total? What, like you're counting, what number are you up to? We, our first year when we started at 2012, we had four. We are currently at 133. What is the typical reaction to people on the boat or people you talk to when they think whales in New York City? They are quite definitely surprised, but they are extremely, extremely pleased and happy to have them here. Why are they back? Because I, I feel like they were, I never heard about whales maybe like 20 years ago. Exactly. It is a relatively new phenomenon, just within the past 10 to 12 years or so. There were sightings previously, but they were very sporadic. Uh, and they're here now for several reasons. Number one, um, these whales are protected now. They're protected under the Marine Mammal Protection Act and the Endangered Species Act. Um, all the great whale species were once commercially harvested for their baleen, for their meat, for their oil, but now we have protection for them here in the United States. And also our waters are cleaner right now than they've been in decades due to the Clean Water Act of 1972. We've been working very hard to improve the cleanliness of our waters. We still have a long way to go, but we have made uh, great improvements. So when you have normal oxygen levels, that supports the growth of plankton. Plankton forms the basis of the food chain in the ocean. Fish feed upon plankton, so again, that starts the food chain. Uh, it increases the biodiversity in the area. Sounds like you've been doing this a while, but what is your most recent favorite memory of doing this or experience? Oh, well, just yesterday we had a wonderful encounter with a, a pod of 100 Atlantic bottlenose dolphins. <laughs> bottlenose dolphins are also uh, quite common in the area this time of year. So every day, every day is an adventure. And we also recently had three, about a few weeks ago, a sighting of a fin whale from our vessel. Fin whales are typically further offshore, um, further east, but we did have a fin whale sighting. So basically, anytime we go out in the water, it is truly an adventure. We really don't know what we're going to see. And do you see ever any baby whales? Is this a like a breeding area or not? No, these, these whales overwinter in the Caribbean or the West Indies. That's their calving ground, their breeding ground. When they're up here in our area in the spring, summer, and fall, 
This is a feeding location for them. So they're here now to feed. And generally, we see more juveniles in our area than full-grown adults. Ah. Although, according to our humpback whale researcher, Danielle Brown, uh, we are starting to get more adults in our area. Ah, well, terrific. Well, thank you very much for taking time out of the cruise today to talk to me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Ah. You're welcome. I'm happy to report that we saw multiple humpback whales that day, including one that rolled around and seemed to wave its fin at us, and then it slapped its huge tail on the surface of the water. It was incredible to see that happening with New York City's skyline still visible in the background. It was really amazing. I'll put a bunch of pictures and the video of the whale waving at us on adriftnyc.com so you can see what we saw that day. When we came back from the whale watch, my husband and I explored the nearby neighborhood of Breezy Point, and we found this amazing restaurant called Kennedy's, and we actually lucked out and got a table that was outside and overlooking parts of Lower New York Bay, the entrance to Jamaica Bay, and we could see this New York City skyline in the distance. It was really a beautiful spot. It stuck in my mind, so I reached out to Kennedy's to see if someone on their staff might be feeling a little creative and might be inspired by Lower New York Bay to create something new. When we come back from this short break, you're going to meet the woman who created that something. And I think you, dear listeners, especially those of you who are staying at home in the attempt to try to flatten the curve of the coronavirus, might really appreciate this because it'll give you something new to try. So hang in. I'm so excited for you to meet our next guest, Ashley Keen. Aside from working at Kennedy's, Ashley is also a nurse. And despite being on the front lines of the coronavirus and caring for many sick New Yorkers, Ashley kindly carved out time to participate in this podcast and support her friends and coworkers at Kennedy's Restaurant, which, like many restaurants in New York, was, at the time that she and I spoke, restricted to providing takeout food only. I really enjoyed meeting Ashley, and I think you will too. Hi, Ashley. Welcome to Adrift NYC. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you. So if you could just start out by telling the listeners a little bit about yourself and kind of your relationship to Lower New York Bay. Okay. I have been a bartender at Kennedy's for about six years. Uh, We closed back when Hurricane Sandy happened for two years, and then I started working there once we reopened. So we're going on six years in October. Uh, it's a beautiful spot right on the water. Great view, great people, great town. And and the water is Lower New York Bay, right? Right where you guys are? Yes, we're right on the bay, um, overlooking the New York City skyline. We have Coney Island when you're looking out to the left. It's just beautiful. All the boats going by right on the bay. Oh, that's very nice. It must be a pleasure to work there, especially during the warmer weather. Oh, yeah. I and mean, people come there alone just for the sunsets. We have really good sunsets. Oh. Just uh good relaxing environment. Well, you certainly know that waterway pretty well, I'm sure. And um, I know that you have created something inspired by the water. So can you tell us a little bit about what you created? Just recently, we had like a really good summer sunset and it made me want to make another drink. So I came up with this drink and I'm going to call it Unwind because I feel it fits well for the for the restaurant and the bar scene. It's pretty much a gin cocktail, Hendrix gin with blood orange juice a little ginger ale, some lime juice, and elderflower, same to me. Pretty much mix it up. It looks exactly like a beautiful summer sunset, the color-wise. We put a fig of rosemary and a slice of orange on top, and it's just one of those refreshing drinks. You can sit down, relax, and unwind right on the water. Oh, that's very nice. And you sent me a picture of it, and I have to say, it does really look like a sunset, especially with the big orange <laughs> slice. It's 
it's it's really good. <laughs> Is gin one of your favorite spirits to use for drinks, or was it just kind of seemed to seemed fitting? To be honest, I. I feel like Tito's is what everyone's going to, and it's the new, the new fave cocktail around. But I said, you know, let me try something else. And I usually don't like gin, but when I put it in, it was honestly delicious. People didn't realize it was gin. Oh, it's really good. It's a really good cocktail. And can you just repeat one more time what the ingredients are? Sure. Uh, so it's Hendrix gin, ginger ale, a little bit of lime juice, Saint Germain elderflower. And a blood orange juice. Oh, and you just mix it up in a mixer, or do you pour them in separately and stir it with a spoon? No, I put everything in except the blood orange juice. I shook it up, so it's kind of like a basic clear color. Then we add in the blood orange right on top, and it gives it that like sunset red orange vibe. And then we add the rosemary and the orange. It's really pretty cocktail. Very nice. Well, I'll put the recipe on the website so people can make it themselves. But if they wanted to get the drink made by you uh, when restaurants reopen, um, how would they find Kennedy's and what what hours are you there that they might be able to pop in and see you? Um, well, I'm there usually every Tuesday and Friday night, which we have live music on Friday night around 9 o'clock. I'm in around 6 to closing. But you can pretty much have this cocktail whenever. I'm going to teach everyone how to make it. Hopefully they do it the right way. <laughs> but uh, you can come in anytime for any of our drinks. Some good music, just a good environment, good company. That sounds nice. And my husband and I were there um, after we did one of the whale watching cruises that leave not too far from where the restaurant is. And we really lucked out and had a like got a seat right on the patio. It was really gorgeous. Yeah, it's definitely definitely the spot to be, no matter what season. To be honest, knowing like restaurants are are only doing takeout right now. Is Kennedy's doing takeout, or had they chosen to just close? So we are doing takeout orders. You can call in, pick it up. We even have a little to go window for cocktails, which is right on our water. Oh, I actually stopped in yesterday to play around with my cocktail recipe. And we had a ton of, you know, people in the neighborhood coming up for drinks. It was really good. People coming out, supporting us and, you know, doing right by the community. Oh, that's great to hear. Yeah, we have a whole menu available, both pub and dinner menu, which we're doing from pretty much 12 till 8. We're doing deliveries also in all our surrounding communities. And we also started a family dinner meal. Hmm. So it's $60 and it serves six people. You get your choice of pasta, uh, meat, and a salad with vegetable and potato. So it's a whole family meal. Just save the cooking and we'll cook for you. Oh, that's really nice. And people can just call in. Is that the best way to reach the restaurant or online orders? How does it work? Mainly by the phone. Just call in. Um, you can see our you can see our menu online though. If you go to Kennedy'sBreezyPoint.com, it's available there for you. But yeah, if you just call, we'll take your order and we'll get it out to you. With this beautiful weather that we've been having, I have to say people probably are enjoying the opportunity to be socially distant but still outside and pop up to your window. That's a really nice feature. Yes, I mean I was only there for an hour yesterday, and the amount of people who are coming to the window for drinks was uh it was pretty cool. Nice to see everyone supporting. That that's really great. Ashley, is there anything else that you that we haven't talked about about the Lower New York Bay or Kennedy's that you'd want to mention? We have a lot of amazing things, especially in the summer. People come in to sit outside, and Friday nights I know Coney Island does like fireworks, so people come for that view. Fourth of July is a great night for us because everyone comes to see the fireworks in the city. We just have like a really good view, honestly. The water is 
the water's home. We're surrounded by it and everyone comes out to enjoy the same thing. You know, I never realized that you would have a wonderful view of the fireworks on July 4th from where you are. Yeah, it's pretty, it's something special. It's really nice. I love, uh, love working there. <laughs> Thank you, Ashley, for giving us a little taste, literally, of um, summer to come. And I'm sure people will enjoy making your drink at home and hopefully stop by and have it made by you or one of your coworkers. So thank you. Please do. I encourage it. Thank you for having me. We're going to take a short break, but when we come back, you're going to hear a really cool conversation I had with the head lecturer and historian of the National Lighthouse Museum. He not only told me all about the many lighthouses in Lower New York Bay, he told me about two islands in the bay that served as quarantine facilities at another time in history when New York City was grappling with different contagious diseases. I'm so excited for you all to meet Wade Goria, who is the historian and lecturer at the National Lighthouse Museum located in St. George, Staten Island. Wade is a fascinating guy, full of stories about the history of Lower New York Bay and its many lighthouses. Wade gives boat tours of the lighthouses and historical points around New York City for the museum. Prior to this work at the museum, Wade was a social studies teacher and professor of international relations at New York University, and he also founded the Bay Ridge Historical Society. Wade taught me so much about the many lighthouses around Lower New York Bay, plus the important role the bay played in the Revolutionary War and the history of two islands in the bay that served as quarantine facilities in the early 1900s. Take a listen. Okay, Wade. Uh, so my first question for you is a tough one because history is hard to talk about in a, in a small period of time. But if there were a few things about the lower New York Bay history that you'd want New Yorkers to know, uh, where would you start? What would you, what, what are the like top three or four things you think people should know? Well, Kathy, I think the, the fact that lower New York Bay represents the entry point to New York Harbor. And because of that fact, it was very heavily defended in, in U.S. history. So you have two very important forts guarding the entrance of the southern point of uh, Lower New York Harbor. So you have Fort Wadsworth and, and Fort Hamilton. And as an historian, I can never look out at Lower New York Harbor and the area around what is called Gravesend Bay without imagining the um, 450 or so ships that the British brought into Lower New York Bay in June, from June to August of 1776, in what became, at that time, the largest uh, naval invasion of any country. So its, its role in the American Revolution, the role that it, it has played in the defense of New York City, and then also people maybe don't think about Lower New York Bay as being a, a place of enormously vital wildlife during the 19th century, 18th and 19th century. It was considered to be one of the best places for lobster fishermen, wonderful oysters, shad coming in from uh, the Hudson River, uh, striped bass, you name it. It was a very rich area for fishing. Back in the 19th century, you could charter a boat for $1 for the day and go fishing and bring back an enormous catch. It was a place where people really enjoyed the, the bounty of one of the great waterways of uh, New York City and the Atlantic Coast. 
Wait, I definitely want to talk about the boat tours that you give for the National Lighthouse Museum and hear all about the different lighthouses that are in Lower New York Bay. But before we talk about them, I do need to just satisfy my own curiosity and ask you about the two islands near the entrance of Lower New York Bay that you mentioned to me before we started recording. I think you said they're called Hoffman and Swinburne, and you mentioned that they were used as quarantine facilities in the late 1800s or early 1900s. Could you tell me a little bit more about those islands and and the story behind them? Yes, I'm happy to. And in fact, in order to put them in context, we actually should go back to the National Lighthouse Museum because uh, the National Lighthouse Museum is on the site of the General Depot for the U.S. Lighthouse Service. Before there was a General Depot, there was a Marine Hospital, which was a quarantine station. Now, that Marine Hospital was very important. Immigrants who were coming at a a fast accelerating pace during the 1830s and particularly in the 1840s from Germany and Ireland, many of them were bringing diseases. The area of St. George had been very underpopulated when that facility was first put in in 1798. It seemed as though it was a pretty good idea to put it over there because it was a very good distance. As a matter of fact, I read that uh, it, it often could take as long before steam had been developed. It could take as long as five hours to get from Manhattan over to St. George. So having a quarantine facility in that location seemed a safe bet. But once steam technology had been developed and a regular ferry service was being established between Staten Island and Manhattan in 1814, the population of St. George and Tompkinsville began to grow quite a bit. And uh, as these people were being brought in to the facility, before you know it, it spreads to nurses and the stevedores who are bringing them out. And now it's the diseases that these folks are bringing with them are sweeping into Tompkinsville and St. George. So there was a very strong uh, movement to move that facility somewhere else. And uh, so they petitioned Albany. They did everything they could. And Albany uh, did back then what it it does today. Absolutely nothing. Uh, so, So on September 1st, 1858, uh, local residents took it upon themselves, most of these were private landowners, took it upon themselves to burn down the Marine uh, Hospital completely. Over a two-day period, there was nothing left. The the patients were brought to safety, so it wasn't uh, terrible in that respect. But it had the support of people like Cornelius Vanderbilt, for instance, who paid the legal fees for some of the people who came to trial. The judge lived in Tompkinsville, or St. George, I forget, I forget which, but uh, he, he, he kept pronouncing not guilty to each of the, uh, the people who were charged with the, the arson. They tried to find another location in Staten Island at Stagine Point. The people in that area burned that complex down. Wow. So we get to Hoffman and Swinburne. Uh, where are you going to put this quarantine? Nobody wants to live near it. And Mayor John Hoffman, who also... Uh, was was governor uh, at the time. Hoffman, by the way, is the only man ever to serve, or the last person ever to serve as both mayor and governor. So Hoffman came up with the idea of two man-made islands that would be put off the coast of Staten Island. One island is named after him, 
And the other is after Dr. John Swinburne, who distinguished himself as a surgeon during the Civil War. So these two islands were created. Hoffman is 11 acres, Swinburne is four acres, and they became quarantine stations. People would be observed in Hoffman Island, and in Swinburne, they would receive once it was determined that they had one of these diseases, cholera, smallpox, yellow fever, they would be treated in, in Swinburne Island. There were mortuaries and crematoriums because a lot of people never were able to be cured of these diseases. It was an ingenious solution. And the two islands functioned as quarantine centers until the 1920s when certain improvements in diseases had been had been made and Ellis Island had been built and had large facilities and they simply weren't needed in the way they, they had been during the 19th century. With all the news about the coronavirus, it certainly is something that's front of mind and it's easy to imagine that these islands were smart at the time to remove these people and treat them. It was an absolutely brilliant brilliant idea. I mean, uh, of course, you know, people people feel very badly for anyone who has a disease and the idea of quarantining them in, in conditions that are isolating. It's a heartbreaking situation, yet it has to be done. Marine hospitals seemed like a good place up until it got too populated. Uh, Hoffman and Swinburne seemed to be a perfect solution. Uh, Hoffman and Swinburne became islands for the use of the federal government, and then the, those islands were sold. There was a lot of complicated politics going on, as one might well imagine, with those two kind of very well-located, quite quite beautiful islands. But it ended up with the National Park Service and the National Park Recreation Area. And now they're beautiful sanctuaries for birds and wildlife and seals. And That's amazing. Unfortunately, we can't we can't visit those. I've always wanted to visit those. Islands. I have to say, with how much mankind uh, rules all of the islands around New York City, I think it's fair that we have two that are, are good for the birds and for the seals and all the wildlife out there. I think it's a very fair compromise. Yes, <laughs> yes. Although tempting, I really am tempted to figure out a way to get there. Yeah. Please let me know if you if if you find out a way. Thanks, Wade, for indulging me in that history. It's so fascinating and so pertinent to our current times. Now I want to switch gears to talk about the lighthouses of Lower New York Bay. When you give the boat tours, and I know you give quite a lot of those tours, what are your favorite lighthouses to call attention to and talk about? You have to mention Sandy Hook Pilots, Battery Weed, Coney Island Light, Old Orchard Shoals Light. And then the elm tree light from Miller Field. Oh, can I stop you right there, Wade? I'm intrigued by your reference to an elm tree lighthouse. Uh, did an elm tree itself serve as a lighthouse? And if so, can you just explain a little bit about that? Elm trees are very wide in their center and very noticeable. And uh, until 1855, when a hexagonal wooden lighthouse was constructed, the elm tree lighthouse, as it was called, then served a very important function operating with the Newdorp lighthouse along the Swash Channel that leads into the Jersey Coast and Perth Amboy. Newdorp lighthouse went out of operation in 1964. In 1974, Jack Boakley, who was the former president of the Board of Trustees of the National Lighthouse Museum, bought the lighthouse. Jack is a great carpenter and repairman, and he got that New Dorp lighthouse into beautiful condition. Very often when 
we have tours, Jack is in attendance and he loves to talk about the lighthouse that he continues to live in to this day and how he fixed it. And he's justifiably very proud of the tremendous work that he's done. And he distributes pictures of the lighthouse and shows the before and after. So that new Dorp light becomes an important part, but it no longer serves as a lighthouse. Can you tell me a little bit more about Miller Field? It sounds like it's right on the coast. Can you see lighthouses right from there? You can stand at the water's edge and appreciate Lower New York Bay and look out at a panorama that extends from Fort Wadsworth, a really massive and and beautiful fort in Staten Island guarding uh, New York's harbor. And as you swing in a northern easterly direction, you can see the Coney Island light at Norton's Point on the tip of uh, Coney Island. And you can then look out. There's two lighthouses in your view, and that's West Bank Lighthouse, a brown-colored, spark-plug-styled lighthouse that operates in conjunction with the Staten Island Rear Range Light that's located up on Richmond Hill in Staten Island. And it's a beautiful lighthouse that is being maintained by the family of the great Joe Esposito. It's also being maintained by the National Lighthouse Museum. Of course, the Coast Guard takes care of the operational light, but we have now assumed a caretaker role over the uh, Staten Island Rear Range Light. There are a few lighthouses that you mentioned at the beginning that we haven't gotten to yet, and, and I don't want to overlook them. One of them was Old Orchard Shoals. Could you tell us a little bit about that one? Old Orchard Shoals stood outside of Great Kills Bay up until October of 2012 when Tropical Storm Sandy completely destroyed it. Old Orchard Shoals was a very, very important marker in that bay. Wow, I never really thought about hurricanes damaging lighthouses. It it makes complete sense. Are there any others that were damaged by Sandy or any other recent storms? Romer Shoals Lighthouse. It's also a cast iron lighthouse that is located off of Sandy Hook. And uh, you can see it in the distance from Miller Field. Romer Shoals is on the list of top five most endangered lighthouses in the United States. And that's because of Tropical Storm Sandy. Unlike Old Orchard Shoals, it survived, but only barely. And a great deal of damage was done to Romer Shoals. But mercifully, it remains standing. John Vincent Scalia, a businessman from Baton Island, purchased the lighthouse, and he maintains it. He's very much a hero for lighthouses along the coast of Staten Island. And it's, it's hanging in there, but not by very much. Now, what about battery weed? That's another one that you mentioned earlier. What's the story behind that one? In 1903, a lighthouse was constructed on the top of what was called battery weed, named after Brigadier General Stephen Weed, who distinguished himself at the Battle of Gettysburg at the Battle of the Little Round Top. And he was killed as a result of that battle, defending the Union position. Battery Weed was established on the top of uh, the what had been Fort Richmond. And it replaced the Fort Tompkins Lighthouse, 
which was having constant problems due to the incessant firing of cannons, many of the enormous Rodman cannons that caused unbelievable vibrations and terrible damage to the Fort Tompkins Lighthouse. The Fort Tompkins Lighthouse, a beautiful Victorian lighthouse that was eventually raised, but it was replaced by battery weed, and that became a guiding light for ships entering New York Harbor. So when I give my tour when we're at Lower New York Harbor, you have to mention battery weed. One has to mention the Sandy Hook Pilots Association, which was established in 1694. It's almost as old as as New York State itself. I'm so glad you brought that up, Wade, because I think that's one of the locations that you mentioned at the beginning that we haven't talked about yet. What's that one all about? The Sandy Hook Pilots Association is, is one of the most prestigious organizations in New York City, and it's the job of these incredibly well-trained pilots to guide ships, freighters, tankers, ocean liners into the New York Harbor. There's some very dangerous sandy bars uh, all around Sandy Hook, and that's why the organization is called the Sandy Hook Pilot Association. Wait, I'm so glad that the National Lighthouse Museum sponsors these tours and that you're able to inform and show so many people where these lighthouses are and the role that they played in our history. Now, before we wrap up, are there any others that you think New Yorkers should know about? Now, there's two lighthouses that are further out that are of tremendous importance to the history of New York City. The first lighthouse that you will see on your port side will be the Twin Lights of Navisink, located along the Atlantic Highlands at the town of Highland, New Jersey. That lighthouse is separated by the Shrewsbury River, which is actually an estuary, and then the Sandy Hook Spit. But the two lights from the Twin Lights of Navisink were a very recognizable guide for mariners as they entered the harbor. The the Twin Lights, the, the first lighthouses that were the first twin lights that were built, built in 1828. And then in 1862, as the Civil War was underway, another lighthouse, beautiful brownstone structure designed by Joseph Letterly. And the style looks very much like the the famous castle for the Smithsonian Institute. It had a gigantic flag. Flagpole was 135 feet high, and it had the biggest flag in the United States. And it's the first place where a Fresnel light was tested in America. Those of you who aren't familiar with a Fresnel light, this was a vastly improved type of light developed by Augustin Fresnel in the 1820s. Fresnel was a road builder under Napoleon Bonaparte, and he made light experiments. And to make a very long and fascinating story short, his experiments proved to be incredibly successful. He won a contest in Montmartre in uh, Paris and uh, became uh, a sort of legend in his own time because he created lights that were vastly superior to what had been in operation before. Some of these lights could be seen 15 miles, 25 miles, some as many as 75 miles away. The twin lights of Navisink were the lights that greeted the passenger as they came across the ocean into New York City. And then after 
seeing those twin lights very easily recognizable, you would then see Sandy Hook Lighthouse. That's the oldest continuously in operation lighthouse in the United States. And it was, it was built by a master mason named Isaac Conroe in June of 1764. It was originally called the New York Lighthouse because money had been raised by New York businessmen. Even though it was in New Jersey, it was vital to business because lighthouses made the passage of goods safe as they entered the harbor. So the British immediately captured it at the outset of the battle for New York City, and they held on to Sandy Hook Light tenaciously. In fact, it was the last place that they surrendered when they evacuated New York City in November of 1783. They did not want to give up Sandy Hook Light because it was so important as a beacon for incoming ships. I think that sort of rounds out the picture, Kathy, of, of, of lighthouses that, that I include on the tour. Some of these lighthouses are included in my cir- circumnavigation tour of Staten Island, and some of them are included in the Ambrose Channel tour that actually takes us up the Shrewsbury River uh, or estuary, uh, right near the twin lights of Navisang. And they're both very interesting tours. I can't decide which ones I, I love the most. They're all really, uh, I think, fascinating glimpses into the maritime history of New York City. Wade, I want to thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me and the listeners and share all of your amazing knowledge. So this has been really wonderful. Thank you so much, Kathy. And i Really appreciate your interest in this subject. This wraps up our visit to Lower New York Bay, number eight in the list of 30 waterways we'll visit on this podcast adventure. As I mentioned in the beginning, I'm publishing this episode while New York City is still on lockdown to limit the spread of the coronavirus. We're respecting the city's request to stay inside, and as a result, we're unable to explore new waterways at this time. But as soon as we're given the green light, we'll be back out there. In the meantime, we're continuing to chat with historians, marine scientists, and creative New Yorkers about the waterways we have yet to visit. So we'll have more episodes coming your way. They might just be even more sporadic until we see what the next few weeks will bring. For now, I want to thank you all for listening. And thanks to Celia Ackerman, Ashley Keene, and Wade Goria for taking time to speak with me about Lower New York Bay. And thanks, as always, to Mary Jean Stead for composing and performing our lovely theme song. If you like this show, please recommend it to a friend. And take a second to give us a review, if you would. We'd love hearing from you. You can also connect with me and other Adrift NYC listeners on Instagram at AdriftNYC. Or you can visit our website at AdriftNYC.com, where you can sign up to get an email whenever a new episode comes out. Thanks again for listening. And until next time, make waves, everyone. from the Tsetse Project.